1: If you dig the twisted, admire the outlandish, and are enamored by the unusual, you're in the right place. True crime, the supernatural, the unexplained, now you're speaking our language. If you agree, join us as we dive into the darker side. You know, because it's more fun over here. Welcome to Total Conundrum. Warning, some listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Ha 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 Hey there, true crime fans. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of Total Conundrum. I'm Jeremy, and as always, I'm joined with the incredible Tracy. How's it going, Tracy?
2: Hey, Jeremy. I'm doing great. <laughs> and I'm thrilled to dive into some more mind-boggling cases with you. Our listeners are in for a real treat today because we got not one, but two perplexing cases to unravel.
1: Absolutely, Tracy. Brace yourselves, folks, because today we're digging into some seriously twisted tales. First up, we've got the infamous lobster boy... Now I know that might sound like something out of a horror movie, but trust me, this is a real-life puzzle that will leave you scratching your head.
2: Oh, you're not kidding, Jeremy. The Lobster Boy case is a true conundrum that involves a family of secrets, jealousy, and a shocking twist that you won't see coming. Get ready to have your assumptions challenged as we peel back the layers of this mystery.
1: And that's not all, folks. Hold on to your seat because we're going to dive into the chilling saga of Mikhail Popkoff, a serial killer whose horrifying acts will make your blood run cold. The details of his crimes and the psychology behind his actions are nothing short of
2: baffling. It's really hard to wrap your head around the mind of someone like Popkoff. The motives, the patterns, the sheer audacity of his actions are puzzling, to say the least. But that's what we're here for, to dissect these conundrums and explore the human psyche behind them.
1: That's right, Tracy. We're not just recounting these stories. We're analyzing, discussing, and trying to make sense of the incomprehensible so, whether you're a seasoned true crime buff or a newcomer to the world of true crime, get ready for a journey that will leave you questioning the very nature of these conundrums.
2: So, grab your detective hats, cozy up with your favorite beverage, and join us as we unravel the threads of these perplexing cases. Total Conundrum is about to take you on a roller coaster ride of curiosity and intrigue. Let's get started. Let's
1: do it. All right. Are you going to start us out today, Tracy?
2: I am. All right. As we discussed just a few seconds ago, I'm going to be telling the story of... The
1: Lobster Boy. The
2: Lobster Boy. And The Lobster Boy, his, uh, his carny name, so his name is actually Grady Franklin Stiles Jr., a.k.a. The Lobster Boy. And I got the information for the story off of watching a documentary on Discovery Plus called Killer Carnies. Ooh, creepy. Yeah, season one, episode one. Nice. Yeah. So Grady Franklin Stiles Jr., which is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. (laughs) Was born on June 26, 1937 in the Pittsburgh area. He was an extraordinary figure in the world of freak shows. He possessed a unique genetic condition called Ectrodactyly. Uh, what a what? what, what? <laughs> right? Basically, it results in his fingers and toes being fused together, resembling lobster claws. Oh. Yeah. This distinctive physical feature earned him the stage name Lobster Boy. Each individual born with this genetic condition, including Grady Jr., exhibits unique manifestations of the gene. Grady Jr. was the fourth generation in his family to be born with this condition, which could be traced back to the 1800s. Holy smokes. That's a lot of family history with the deformity. Yeah. So Grady Jr. was born into a carnival family. His father, Grady Sr., initially worked as a vendor selling novelty items during their travels. However, recognizing the uniqueness of Grady Jr.'s condition, he saw an opportunity to capitalize on it.
1: You're recruited, boy.
2: (laughs) So when Grady Jr. was only around seven or eight years old, his father decided to showcase him On the carnival stage and introducing him to the world of the sideshow performances.
1: We're putting you to work. You're the freak of the week, buddy.
2: (laughs) Seven or eight years old. And yeah. During that era in the United States, individuals born with birth deformities were often referred to as freaks. And it was a common practice for them to join traveling carnivals as part of a sideshow attraction. The Styles family gained significant fame and recognition due to their unique condition, and they were regarded as royalty within the world of the freak show business. Their presence added a sense of wonder and intrigue to the carnival circuit, capturing the curiosity and fascination of audiences far and wide. From a young age, Grady Jr was thrust into the spotlight, harboring resentment towards his early start as a performer. Enduring the mockery and ridicule of others throughout his formative years, he felt trapped, believing that his only means of survival was to embrace his role as a carnival freak and capitalize on his uniqueness for financial gain. The weight of societal judgment shaped his perspective, leaving him with limited options and a sense of resignation towards his fate in the carnival world. Grady Jr.'s act revolved around his Distinctive physical condition, dactyly, which is a mouthful, positioned on a stage, he would captivate the audience with a heartfelt discussion about his condition, His limited mobility prevented him from walking, forcing him to use his hands and arms to move around, a skill that gave him considerable upper body strength. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. He was a very, very built man. I mean, when you have to literally walk around on your hands all day, you're going to build up some strength. Oh, yeah. It's
1: kind of like people with wheelchairs, you know.
2: Oh, just, yeah, the whole, yep, the upper body strength is incredible. And his was even more so, they said, because he didn't get a wheelchair until he was older. So he literally walked around on his hands, scooted and walked. So with an innate flair for seeking attention, Grady Jr. delighted in showcasing his unique hands and feet to the spectators, following it up with an unforgettable spectacle if met with fear or unease from the crowd, he would fearlessly launch himself towards them, crawling in a remarkable display of fearlessness. He thrived at the limelight and reveled at being the center of attention. So in this video or documentary I was watching, they showed a clip of what he would do and he would literally like just fly across the stage towards whoever was like ridiculing him you know like he was like
1: like a crab walk
2: yeah it was like I was almost like he was just I mean I can't even describe it I mean he was so fast and he would just like fly towards them and they would like (gasps) you know (laughs) he wouldn't actually go oh my god (laughs) right you know at them but he would like go in their direction it was enough to get their attention
1: (laughs) They should have called him the Krabby Man, though, so we could have made, like, uh, Spongebob jokes.
2: Spongebob Squarepants. (laughs) It could have
1: been, uh, hey, make me a Krabby Patty.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Initially, a solitary sideshow act, say that ten times fast, Grady Jr. eventually ventured into the realm of multiple sideshows diversifying his business. The ensemble encompassed an array of captivating performers, including sword swallowers, fire eaters, and blockheads, to name a few. Nice. Yeah, despite the addition of these remarkable acts, Grady Jr. constantly shone as an unrivaled star of the show, retaining his magnetic present and captivating the audience with his unique persona. In the 1950s, Grady Jr. crossed paths with a captivating woman named Mary Teresa during their carnival travels. Mary Teresa, known as the Electrified Girl, fascinated audiences with her electrifying illusion act. As fate would have it, A profound connection blossomed between them and they electricity spark electricity (laughs) spark and they went on a journey of love and companionship bound by their shared passion for the carnival world. Grady Jr. and Mary Teresa married becoming partners not only on stage but also in life's grand adventure. Grady Jr. and Mary Teresa's love expanded to embrace the joy of parenthood as they welcomed two children in their lives. Their firstborn, Donna, arrived in the world without the familial deformity. And the baby was a baby eel. A baby eel? Electricity. (laughs) With lobster claws. (laughs) With lobster claws. So Donna was born. She did not have the deformity. However, their second child, Kathy, came into the world. She bared the same unique genetic trait as Grady, with only the two fingers on each hand, resembling the lobster claws and the single toe on each foot. So as Grady Jr.'s business thrived, his personal life descended into turmoil. Behind the curtains of success, he battled his demons as an alcoholic, subjecting his wife and family to cycles of abuse. However, he masterfully concealed his true nature from those outside the intimate circle of his family, maintaining a facade of charm and composure. It was a distressing combination, the stark contrast between his public persona and the hidden darkness that plagued his private world. So in 1973, Grady and Mary Teresa went their separate ways, finally divorcing And with his vindictive nature, Grady cunningly secured full custody rights to their daughters, Donna and Kathy, leveraging his position as the sole breadwinner in the family. It was a calculated move to exert control and ensure he had the power over their lives, reflecting his true colors as a not-so-nice man. So after their divorce, do you think Mary became a nun? Became a nun, yeah. a reborn virgin. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do get into Mary's, uh, Mary's future here in a little while. Uh, a few years later, Grady Jr. crossed paths with Barbara Lucille, famously known as the Snake Girl. In the carnival circuit. Oh boy! <laughs> I'm
1: guessing a snake handler or.
2: Well, she was involved in immersing herself in a pit of pythons. Oh. Ugh.
1: <laughs> Sounds entertaining.
2: Ew! She captivated the audiences with her daring performance. Barbara, you are crazy! Crazy snakes are nasty. Barbara already had a daughter from a previous relationship named Tamara Cox, who affectionately referred to Grady Jr. as her dad throughout their lives. The bond between them grew stronger over the years. In 1976, Grady Jr. and Barbara welcomed their own child, a baby boy named Grady Franklin III. While residing in Pittsburgh, they had him while they lived in Pittsburgh, and to avoid confusion, we're going to refer to the young boy as Styles for the rest of the story. I just there's too many of these stories that have the seniors, juniors, thirds, fourths, fifths. Yeah, it gets very confusing. Styles like Teen <laughs> So Styles, unlike his father and sister, was born with a total of seven fingers: three on one hand and four on the other. Another notable distinction was that Styles could make a fist with his right hand while his left hand lacked the same functionality. This marked a unique characteristic within the family as neither his dad nor his sister could make a fist. Which I guess I would have never thought of that because if you only have... So basically this is... They just have the two fingers, like the claws. So with that, I'm trying and yeah, I can't make a fist. <laughs> I know this isn't a visual thing, but I had to try it. <laughs> so the lobster family thrived as they assembled their captivating show with Grady Jr. as the undisputed star, and they embarked on a long-lasting journey crossing thousands of miles each year, bringing their unique spectacle to different corners of the country. Styles reminisces that growing up in this environment was both chaotic and and awe inspiring. They experienced the thrill of constant travel, exploring new places, and encountered a maraud of people. Every couple weeks they were they were meeting new people, making new friends.
1: Sounds horrifying.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think it <laughs> sounds wonderful. <What? laughs> the traveling the country, meeting new people, seeing new things.
1: I'm sure we can get their number. We could probably, yeah. If you want a job there. Yeah. You would be a carny person.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I'd make I don't have any good uh good talents.
1: Get <laughs> super gooey your claws. Together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just get some really long nails. Oh grow you, I could do that. I yeah. could grow
2: my nails out and have no, I couldn't handle that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, how would you pick your nose?
2: <laughs> right? How would you wipe? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Their routine involved setting up a camp in a fresh location for a span of 7 to 10 days where they would pour their hearts into captivating audiences and maximizing their earnings. Whether it was selling tickets, arranging the stage, dismantling equipment, or performing, they continued to reign as sideshow royalty wherever they went. The elite. They were the elite. Elite of the elite. However, in the harsh reality, She's a super
1: freak, super freak, she's super, super freaking now.
2: <laughs> However, in the harsh reality outside of the carnival realm, the lobster family faced judgmental gazes and hushed conversations. People would inquire if their deformity resulted from incest or exposure to harmful substances. As a young child, Stiles couldn't comprehend why others would stare at him in such a peculiar manner. Grady Jr., however, encouraged his son to embrace their distinctive features. He saw an opportunity to capitalize on their uniqueness and turn their disability into a means of livelihood. After all, if people were going to gawk, why not charge them for this privilege? Which, that's... As well. Exactly. It was an unconventional approach, but it allowed them to forge a path and sustain themselves in a world that often questioned and misunderstood them. By 1978, the lobster family had settled in Pittsburgh, and at the age of 15, Donna encountered a young man named Jack Lane, and their hearts. Jack in- Link. Jack Lane, <laughs> not the beef jerky. Are you hungry? Uh, Give <laughs> given a little craving. I'm always hungry. <laughs> Jack Links. Jack Links. Isn't he? Wasn't that? Uh, isn't no. that place based in Wisconsin? I think so. I think so too. So Donna met Jack and their hearts intertwined in a whirlwind of romance it didn't take long for donna to realize that she no longer wanted to endure her father's abusive ways and this newfound love provided her with a glimmer of hope and a potential escape from the torment she'd endured for a long time jack a townie was not part of the carnival world that consumed donna's life When she shared the news of her engagement to Jack with her father, Grady Jr. and his disapproval was palpable. Frustrated and desperate for freedom, Donna concocted a plan to convince her father to let her run away with Jack. She fabricated a story about being pregnant, hoping that the prospect of being a grandparent would soften his resistance. In her desperation, Donna clung to any means possible to gain her father's consent and pave the way for her escape. Grady Jr. reluctantly gave in and signs the papers allowing Donna to marry Jack. Deep down, he resents the fact that this townie is taking his daughter away and he feels like she's slipping through his fingers, leaving him behind for good. So on the eve of their wedding, on September 27, 1973, Jack, Donna, and Barbara Return to the house after picking up Donna's wedding dress. Jack and Grady Jr. stay in the living room and have a conversation while the rest of the family goes outside. Suddenly, two loud bangs echo through the house, startling everyone. Ah, <gasps> yeah. Then Jack appears outside, collapsing in Donna's arms. His last words before he passed away were simply, "He shot me." So, as the police arrive to the scene, they find Grady Jr. sitting on the front stoop, patiently waiting for them. With a somber demeanor, he confesses to the officers that he indeed shot Jack and calmly states that he's prepared to face the consequences of his actions. I mean, why just... (laughs) Don't sign the papers! Don't give your approval!
1: Better yet, how does a lobster shoot somebody? Jeez!
2: Oh, they actually, in the documentary, they are quite, they like show...
1: down with her. Yes,
2: very. Digits. And like they have a video of Kathy, his daughter, shooting a rifle. Hmm. And it's pretty, it, they are very... Versatile, very incredible with what they can do. I will never look at a lobster the same way again. No, a lobster can shoot you, baby. I mean, don't throw it into a <laughs> boiling pot of water. <laughs> they might retaliate.
1: Make sure it ain't packing first.
2: Right. <laughs> During his interview at the police station, Grady Jr. maintains that he acted in self-defense when he shot Jack. He recounts a disturbing encounter where Jack was verbally and physically abusive towards him, specifically taunting him about Donna. According to Grady Jr., the situation escalated when Jack aggressively approached him, seemingly ready to attack. In that moment, Grady Jr. instinctively reached for a gun and fired in self-preservation. Curious about the unusual placement of the firearm downstairs, The police inquired as to why it was not in its usual location upstairs. Grinning mischievously, Grady Jr. adopts an innocent expression and casually replies, I don't know.
1: Hey, where did he keep the gun? Did he keep it in his crabby panties?
2: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Or in his... uh, SpongeBob SquarePants?
1: (laughs) Never know. Just
2: never know. (laughs) So he replied mischievously and innocently, I don't know, leaving the detectives puzzled and wondering about the true intentions behind his deliberate choice. This incident shed a revealing light on the true nature of Grady Jr., while he portrayed a jovial and entertaining persona during his performances and public appearances. Behind closed doors, he was a vastly different person. He battled alcoholism, harbored a deep well of aggression and cruelty. He was possessing remarkable upper body strength. He relied on his physicality rather than a wheelchair until his teenage years. Regrettably, if his wife or children failed to comply with his demands, he resorted to violence, resorting to choking and punching as a means of control. In 1979, Donna bravely testified in court, revealing that her father had threatened to kill Jack before allowing them to marry. Grady Jr. cunningly played upon his handicap, presenting himself as feeble and incapable of self-defense. However, the truth emerged when the autopsy reports indicated that Jack had sustained a gunshot wound in his back. This shocking revelation painted a different picture. Jack was desperately trying to flee for his life, only to be shot by Grady Jr. as he ran away. So yeah, he wasn't trying to attack him, and it wasn't self-defense. He was just a crotchety... Murderer. Murderer.
1: Crabby yeah. crabby murderer. Crabby pants. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the I, jer- mean, I mean,
1: lobsters, Just you can't really do any good jokes
2: with lobsters. It's got to be crap. <laughs> it's got to be crab, yeah, yeah. Mr. Krabby Patties. <laughs> the jury reached a guilty verdict, charging Grady Jr. with third-degree murder. The potential sentencing for his crime ranged from 10 to 20 years in prison. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. However, to the disappointment of many, the judge, taking his disability into consideration, decided against incarcerating him. Instead, Grady Jr. received a probation sentence, which left many feeling with a sense of injustice. No jail time. Zip, zero, zilch. That's crazy. Yeah. So following the trial, Donna and Kathy chose to return to live with Mary Teresa, their mom, seeking refuge from the abusive environment. Meanwhile, Barbara, Tamara, and Grady Jr. and Stiles resumed their travels, but the cycle of abuse persisted. Grady Jr.'s menacing words, I got away with murder once, I can do it again, hung heavy in the air, casting a shadow over all of their lives. Barbara and the children bore the physical marks of abuse on their bodies, adorned with bruises, serving as a grim reminder of their daily torment. Tamara vividly remembers the day that she turned 13 realizing that she couldn't bear to live under the same roof as her stepfather any longer determined to escape his clutches she moved out just two weeks later styles too holds a haunting memory etched in his mind the sounds of his stepmother Barbara's terrified screams pleading for his father to release his grip With a surge of courage, he broke down the door to come to her rescue, finding his father choking her. It took another year before Barbara was able to gather the strength to leave and seek freedom from the unbearable torment. I mean, this guy was just a tyrant. Yeah, sounds like it. With Donna, Kathy, Tamara, and Barbara all gone, The Kearney Circuit became a desolate place for Grady Jr. and his son, Stiles. Styles found himself bearing the brunt of his father's wrath, becoming the sole target for his aggression. Living under the same roof with Grady Jr. became a harrowing experience for Stiles as he was trapped in the clutches of this relentless monster. Speculations arose regarding Grady Jr.'s heavy drinking habits as people believed it was a result of his profoundly unhappy life ever since his relationship with Mary Teresa came to an end. The sadness that engulfed him seemed to drive him towards alcohol as a means to cope with his pain and loneliness. In the late 80s Grady Jr. made the decision to turn his life around and quit drinking. The transformation was remarkable. It was as if he emerged as a significantly kinder and more pleasant individual. It was during this period that he had a fateful reunion with Mary Teresa, his former partner and ex-wife. Destiny seemed to have brought them together once again, offering a glimmer of hope for a renewed connection and a possibility of rediscovering the happiness that they had. Following Mary Teresa's departure from Grady Jr., she had found love with another fellow performer that she met during her travels named Harry Newman. So remember you asked if she went on and yeah. what she went on to do. So Harry was also a circus freak. He was renowned as the world's smallest man. And he captured Mary Teresa's heart. And I'd use the term freak not as a derogatory term. This is what they actually called themselves yeah. in the documentary. And so I just want to make sure I'm not uh, coming across as using something that's not. See, I was going off of maybe she she became Mother Teresa. Oh, because... <laughs> 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 Whoosh, that went right over my head. <laughs> Mary, Mary Teresa, Teresa. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa. Oh, boy. And it's funny because I did think of that relation when I first said her name or yeah. came across her name. But, yeah, that went right over my head. Blonde moment. <laughs> so Mary Teresa had married Harry Newman, the world's smallest man. The couple also had a son. How did she find him? I'm not sure. Magnified. He's laps. so small. It's a widow.
1: Itty bitty.
2: Itty bitty tiny weenie. (laughs) Teeny weenie. (laughs) Cut that out. Oh, my God. (laughs) That did not come out, right? (laughs) Nope. That stays in there. (laughs) Freudian slip. (laughs) So, anyway, the couple welcomed a son named Harry Glenn Newman Jr., another junior, affectionately they called him glennie 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 so by the time grady jr reunited with mary teresa she had already parted ways with harry and they were officially divorced their paths crossed once more opening a new chapter in their lives glennie being only two years older than styles formed a strong bond with him and embraced their brotherly connection during the particular period between October and February, they resided in a charming town called Gibsonton, Florida, renowned as Gibtown or Showtown USA. And this, the way they talk about this town, I so wish I could go back in time and go and visit this town cuz it just sounds like it was amazing. So this town served as a hub for all of the sideshow performers, creating a subculture of the extraordinary. While Gibson Tin had since has now since become a relic of the past, 25 years ago, as Stiles recalled, it was packed with carny freaks. The streets were filled with people preparing rides and games for the upcoming season, Tamara reminisces about the echoing growls of the lions and the tigers in the distance.
1: Lions and tigers and bears,
2: oh, oh my! my. <laughs> Added to the surreal atmosphere, Styles fondly remembers passing by the house of Priscilla the monkey girl and Jeannie the half lady without feeling any sense of otherness because they were all different in their own unique ways. In that vibrant community, they were more than neighbors. They were a tight-knit family. I mean, could you imagine being a child and growing up and having that, you know, whimsical life around you all the time? I mean, their life was the carnival and this town gave them a hub, not having people look at them funny or, you know, and it was just they were totally in their element. I think it would be a would have been a magical experience to go, you know, if you were Around during that time to visit that town. Well, it,
1: I mean, it might have been that way for them, but I don't know if all of those carnies would feel the same way. You know, having an
2: outsider yeah, come in I mean, and visit.
1: It might look romantic from you know the outside, but from the inside,
2: right? Well, some he, of the
1: stories of those places
2: were pretty tragic. Pretty tragic, I suppose. Styles, I suppose, being a younger boy, I mean, he really painted this picture. And I was just like, I don't want to grow up in a community like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
1: know? I mean, well, your story is kind of based around like the 80s, right? Right. Yes, now? yes. Yeah, so times are probably different then. But yeah, uh, like
2: the earlier time frames and yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, his dad or whatever, you know, probably had a harder time. Harder
2: time, yeah. Well, and as we'll get to in the story, you know, as time goes on, acceptance becomes more of a thing, too. People aren't as isolated. And yeah. and I think we're actually going to get to that here soon. So anyway, getting on with the story. Regrettably, the joyous chapter of Grady Jr.'s life was short-lived, lasting only about a year and a half. Soon after reuniting with Mary Teresa and marrying her, Grady Jr. Ju- Teresa. Oh, Mother Truth! excuse me. (laughs) He succumbed to his old habits and started drinking again. Uh Uh-oh. Mm-hmm.
1: He fell off the wagon. Big time. Claw first.
2: (laughs) With the return of alcohol, his violent and abusive nature resurfaced, shattering any hopes of a lasting change. Stiles holds the belief that his father's temporary sobriety was merely a ploy to win back Mary Teresa, Donna, and Kathy, using it as a means to bring them back into his life. During this period, sideshows were experiencing a rapid decline and fading into obscurity. Society was becoming more accepting of differences, which was undoubtedly a positive development. However, for individuals like Grady Jr. and his family, who relied on their uniqueness abilities for income, It presented as a bittersweet situation. Financially, their day to day survival became increasingly challenged as you know, as there was less demands for these shows. Right. I mean, the demand just diminished. The changing times brought both progress and acceptance and significant struggle to sustain their livelihood. During this period, Grady Jr.'s public persona underwent a disturbing transformation. It seemed as though he had lost all regards for his surroundings or for the individuals he encountered while he was under the influence of alcohol. His behavior became increasingly belligerent and violent, Regardless of his location or the people involved, he would miraculously attack others without any apparent reason or provocation. The once jovial and charismatic performer had now become an unpredictable force, inflicting harm upon those unfortunate enough to cross his path.
1: Drunken madness. Yeah.
2: So his, uh, the one guy in um, the murder, his Timmy came out. His Timmy came Yeah. The cycle of abuse resumed within the confines of their home and his intensity escalated to alarming levels. Styles vividly recalls a harrowing incident captured on home video. In the footage, Grady Jr. and Styles can be seen wrestling on the floor. The situation takes a terrifying turn when Grady Jr. locks Styles in a resentless chokehold. Ignoring his desperate pleas for release, as he gasps for air, Mary Teresa, recognizing the severity of the situation, abruptly stops recording and rushes to intervene, rescuing Styles from the suffocating grip of his father. This disturbing scene serves as a haunting testament to the depths of violence that plagued their household. So, yeah, it started off as just a little, you know, ha let's see if you're as strong you're as your match. pop. Yeah, yeah. and... The kid is like literally pleading, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, Dad, let me go. Oh, you're weak, you're weak, you know. And he's just, you know, totally provoking him, you know. Sounds
1: exactly like my family,
2: (laughs) you and your uncles.
1: Yeah. Well, my dad, he'd do that too. We would do that too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, my uncles used to hang me upside down from the by my ankles over the basement landing or whatever. It was a different time back then. It really was. (laughs) We'd beat up on each other. all I mean, I didn't, but my uncles sure liked to beat up on me. Yeah, and they
1: always picked on the smaller people. They never picked on people their own size. Right,
2: because, you know? I mean, they had—they knew they would win. <laughs>
1: See, they, they always used the uh, term, I'm just toughing you up, making you less of a wimp. <laughs> yeah, and
2: My Uncle Danny, one time when he was babysitting us, I don't know if we were annoying him or not, But he convinced my brother, my sister, and I that if we sat there and pushed on the garage, the three of us, if we sat there and just pushed on the garage long enough, we could actually move it. <laughs> um, and I'm sure he disappeared for a while. And he's like, Oh, yeah, he was, he was like,
1: <laughs> We sat there for the easiest money I've ever made. <laughs> I don't even know
2: how long we truly sat there and did it, but we did. We were trying to move our car.
1: It, it, it was probably five minutes.
2: Felt like longer, but well, yeah. probably. He's like, Dang but it, what now? <laughs>
1: that's about the length of uh, your attention span at that age. And, right. After it's like, ah, let's go play baseball.
2: Exactly. <laughs> let's go play tag. Hide and seek. So in another distressing episode, Grady unleashed his rage upon Mary Teresa, subjecting her to a brutal assault. Kathy, who was pregnant at the time, courageously intervened, attempting to pry her father off of her mother. And in a callous display of violence, Grady Jr. struck Kathy with a forceful backhand blow to her abdomen causing her to go into premature labor. The incident stands as a stark illustration of the profound harm inflicted upon his own family by Grady Jr.'s uncontrollable anger and aggression. In another horrifying incident, Mary Teresa was jolted from her sleep to find Grady Jr. menacingly wielding a steak knife against her throat. He ominously threatened to end her life and all of the children but the time was not right yet, he said. The situation continued deteriorating, plunging them further into this escalating nightmare of fear and danger. This
1: uh, time to go. This
2: guy's a raging lunatic.
1: Yeah, everybody needs to just leave. Right.
2: He needs to live a life all by himself, where he has nobody to harm.
1: Yeah. I mean, get, he, get him drunk until he passes out. Pack your shit and go. Go.
2: <laughs> Be gone. Because, you know,
1: it's only the beginning. It's got to get worse, right. right? Right. Obviously. I mean, it's one of our stories, so it's got to get worse.
2: <laughs> so on November 29th, 1992, a chilling 911 call echoed from Grady Jr.'s residence, reporting a murder that had taken place within their home. It was Glennie, Mary Teresa's son, who mustered the courage to make the distressing call as he entered the living room, a horrifying sight awaited him. Grady Jr. was slumped in his chair, bearing the grim evidence of three gunshot wounds to his head. Somebody couldn't take it anymore. So the forensic analysis revealed a combination of two shots fired from a distance, one fired at close range, intensifying the mystery surrounding this tragic event. I mean,
1: it doesn't sound like he had a shortage of enemies. No. you could have probably 50 different people wanting to put some holes in his head.
2: (laughs) Yes, he was not too concerned about uh, being friendly with people anymore.
1: Yeah, that's what alcohol
2: did. Oh, totally. So with no indications of forced entry, investigators swiftly ruled out the notion of a home invasion. They redirected their focus towards the crime driven by passion or revenge. Unraveling the complex web of potential suspects proved to be quite the arduous task as Grady Jr. had amassed a lengthy roster of adversaries throughout his tumultuous life. Ain't that the truth? This extensive list of individuals harboring grudges against him presented investigators with a formidable challenge as they tirelessly sought to identify the culprit behind this heinous act. As the investigation progressed, an important lead emerged from keen observations of a neighbor named Marco. He reported witnessing a suspicious individual exiting the trailer through the rear door According to Marco's description, the person appeared to be a young white male standing around 5'8 in height. There,
1: it was that guy off of the fish sticks box.
2: Oh, um, the uh, Maury's fish. (laughs) (laughs) What what is this? I don't know his name.
1: (laughs) He he was coming to get some crab meat (laughs) or lobster meat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He was wearing a yellow jacket and a yellow hat. You know
1: that song, uh, The Fisherman? How does that go? God damn it.
2: What song is it? I don't know. You need to figure it out because I don't know which one you're talking about. Okay.
1: I'll try to figure it
2: out. Okay. So instead of wearing a yellow rain jacket and hat, he was wearing a black jacket and dark (laughs) hair.
1: Obviously, you know who I'm talking about. Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This valuable information provided a crucial starting point for the authorities to narrow down their search of the potential suspects.
1: And is no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's Gilligan's Isle, baby, Gilligan's <laughs> Island?
1: Uh, they're probably fishermen, weren't
2: they? Oh, I'm sure they had to to survive. That was the millionaire and and his his wife, wife. (laughs) the the
1: movie star,
2: the professor, Professor and Marianne
1: here on Gilligan's
2: Isle. (laughs) Oh boy. Sorry about that. These (laughs)
1: were nerds.
2: During the investigation, the police approached Mary Teresa for questioning, but she provided a solid alibi. She was at her daughter's house, spending time with her daughter and granddaughter when the tragic event occurred. According to her statement, Stiles was the only one present at the home during that time. As it turned out, Stiles had been home peacefully sleeping in his bed. Earlier that day, he and Grady Jr. had rented two movies. They had watched a horror movie together, and after it ended, Stiles retired to his bed while his father started watching the gangster film that they had rented. He was startled awake by a series of loud pops, but Styles initially attributed the sounds to be a sound effect from the movie playing in the living room, believing it to be a part of the film. And he had eventually drifted back off to sleep, which would make sense. I mean, if he's watching a gangster movie and there's a lot of gunfire and stuff, he got awoke, but probably by the gunshots, but didn't realize how loud they were in comparison to what was on the TV.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I figured out he did it. You want to hear? New Gorton's Microwave Crunchy Fish Sticks and Filets.
0: But are they crunchy?
1: They're mild white fish with no preservatives.
0: But are they crunchy?
1: Packed in Gorton's Advanced Microwave Containers. But are they... So they come out (laughs) crunchy. That's
0: what we've been waiting for. Trust Gorton's for fish the way you want it.
1: It's the captain,
2: folks. (laughs) Is it the one that wears the yellow? Yeah. I couldn't remember if the Gorton's one did or not. That's funny. Crunchy... Fish sticks in the microwave? How is that even possible?
1: (laughs) Sounds kind of (laughs) nasty. Ew.
2: (laughs) So Harry Newman, Mary Teresa's ex-husband, happened to be outside Kathy's trailer at the time and heard the distinct sound of the three loud pops. Alarmed, he immediately entered Grady Jr.'s trailer and discovered Grady's lifeless body in his chair. As a result, Harry was taken into custody for further questioning and subjected to a polygraph examination. Unfortunately, the polygraph indicated deceptive responses from Harry. Overwhelmed with emotion during the interrogation, he tearfully denied any involvement in the crime but claimed that he did have knowledge of who the true perpetrator was. Chris Wyant, a person who lived in the neighborhood, is who he pointed his fingers at. During the police investigation, Glennie made a shocking revelation confessing that he and his mother had reached a breaking point and decided to take drastic measures. According to Glennie's account, Mary Teresa provided him with three hundred dollars to hire Chris Wyant with the intention of having Grady Jr. killed. It's worth noting that there was varying amounts that were mentioned in different sources.
1: Budget hitman.
2: Budget hitman. Yeah. But this particular sum was mentioned during the interrogation tape featured in the documentary, so that's what I went with. In Mary Teresa's defense, she explained that her actions stem from a place of fear, genuinely believing that Grady Jr. posed a serious threat to her and their entire family's lives. Well, hell yeah, you're waking up to a frickin' steak knife to your neck, you're getting strangled and beaten, and they, like you said, they should have all just got him drunk and packed up and left.
1: Yeah, pretty much self-defense, case closed.
2: right. In 1994, Mary Teresa faced charges of manslaughter and received a 12-year prison sentence. Oh, come on. She was released only after serving six years behind bars. Meanwhile, Glennie, being convicted of first-degree murder, remained in prison until his death in 2014. As for Chris, he was found guilty of second degree murder, served a fifteen year sentence before being released in twenty nineteen or excuse me, two thousand nine, marking the end of his time behind bars. So I don't understand how Glennie got convicted of first degree. Yeah, but the guy that actually killed him. Killed him, him second. second. And I mean. And Gary Jr. this whole time, or Grady Jr., excuse me, convicted murder. And was not charged with anything.
1: Yeah, I think they needed better lawyers because, I mean, that was pure self-defense in my eyes.
2: Oh, I agree. So Styles ended the documentary stating that when he thinks of his dad, he says it's hard to remember the good times. His dad was a drunken, abusive bastard. Yeah.
1: I mean, sure, he might have been sleeping at the time, but clearly it was self-defense. I mean, come on.
2: Right. But he fears if Grady Jr. did not die that night, he did not know if any of them yes, would have survived. Some,
1: somebody would have eventually.
2: Right. Yeah. So that's my story. But then
1: again, the better option may have been uh, just uh, do that uh, country song, Boots, and Boogie,
2: <laughs> yeah, right out the door. Yeah. yeah. Where am I gonna live? When I get home. Wrong son. <laughs> I know. But I was thinking that would be a good one too. My old lady's is thrown out everything, out. everything I own. <laughs> she could have gone that route too. Could have. Change the locks, throw out everything he owns. But yeah, that's what I have for you today. That was she my done
1: she done diggy.
2: That that was my story of the lobster boy.
1: Sweet. Good
2: job. Thanks. It Uh, was a little bit of a different twist on true crime, adding the whole carnival life and stuff in there. Yeah, that story
1: made me hungry for lobster. (laughs) I just don't understand it.
2: You need a Krabby Patty?
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's get into my story, folks. My story is of Mikhail Popkov, a.k.a. the werewolf.
2: Ooh. Werewolves of London. Werewolves of London.
1: So Mikhail Viktorovich Popkov, also known as the Werewolf or the Ingsgart Maniac, was born on March 7, 1964, in the town of Ingsgart, located in the Irkutsk Oblast region of Russia. He led a seemingly ordinary life as a police officer and a family man. But behind that facade, he harbored a dark secret. Does anyone want to guess what his dark secret was?
2: He was a werewolf?
1: He was a monster, that's for sure. So Popkoff began his killing spree in the late 1990s when he worked as a police officer in Angskar. He specifically targeted women, most of whom were sex workers or individuals he considered immoral. Under his position of authority, he gained the trust of the victims, which allowed him to lure them into a car or secluded area under the pretenses of protecting them.
2: Yeah, their job was immoral. Yeah. And he has the right to judge. Oh, yeah. Wonderful pillar of the community there. Judge, jury, and
1: executioner, apparently. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So once he had the victims isolated, Popkoff would rape torture, and ultimately kill them. His preferred method of murder was brutal and sadistic. He would often bludgeon or stab his victims to death, leaving their bodies abandoned in the nearby forest or other remote locations. To further cover his tracks, he sometimes mutilated their bodies, making it difficult for authorities to identify them. Popkoff managed to evade suspicion for years due to his job as a police officer which granted him access to insider information about the investigation. He even participated in the search for the killer.
2: I was going to say, did he do anything to try to cover up?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Manipulated facts. Yeah, the evidence. uh, Further diverting suspicion away from himself. As a result, the local community believed the murders were the work of multiple perpetrators. However, in 2012, advancements in forensic technology led to a breakthrough in the case. Investigators were able to match the DNA evidence from the crime scene to Popkoff's DNA profile, ultimately linking him to the murders. Authorities arrested him in 2012, and during questioning, he confessed to 22 cases. Killings.
2: 22
1: women between 1994 and 2000. This confession shocked the nation and the world.
2: Where were Rocky and Bullwinkle? I don't know. They would have solved it faster. You sure? Maybe. I don't know. Natasha and. Boris.
1: Boris Boris
2: and Natasha. Actually, they were the bad guys. They wouldn't have done anything. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Uncovering the horrifying truth behind the seemingly ordinary police officer.
2: That is insane.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And and we're not even close to done here. There's a lot more to come. In 2012, while under surveillance, Popkov was observed discarding items near one of the murder sites. The police collected those items and discovered a significant amount of evidence linking him to the crimes including personal belongings of the victims and the murder weapons. As the investigation continued, the number of confirmed victims grew rapidly. Popkov's chilling revelation led to him being dubbed as one of the most prolific serial killers in Russian history.
2: That is crazy.
1: Yeah, this guy is a whole new level. So in total, he confessed to killing 78 women. And the true number may even be higher.
2: Are you kidding me?
1: Nope. Serious.
2: Oh, holy shit.
1: Yeah, I mean, he must top the world for victims. I mean, I couldn't imagine anybody else having a higher body count than this I dude.
2: am dumbfounded.
1: Yeah, a lot of people were. And so he confessed to the 78, but the true number may be higher. The victims range in age from 17 to 38 years old.
2: And he did it all under the cover of being a police officer.
1: Yeah. In 2015, Mikhail Popkoff was convicted of 22 murders and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole.
2: Is that because that's all they...
1: That's had all they had proof of. of. Okay. Yeah. During his trial, he showed little remorse to his heinous actions and his lack of empathy sent shockwaves throughout society. The case of Mikhail Popkov shed light on the failings of the Russian law enforcement system. As his crimes went undetected for many years, it led to reforms within the police force and improvements in the handling of forensic evidence. It also served as a reminder that monsters can sometimes hide in plain sight. Totally. Appearing as ordinary individuals while carrying out unspeakable acts.
2: That is mortifying.
1: Yeah, and it gets better. It Uh, gets better. We're not done yet. I
2: don't want to put a pin in it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The story of Mikhail Popkov is a chilling reminder of the darkness that can lurk within the human psyche and the importance of vigilance in the pursuit of justice. Despite his life sentence, Mikhail Popkoff's story did not end with his conviction. What? Yep. As more information emerged, investigators began to suspect that the number of his victims could even be higher than the initial confession suggested. Mm. In 2017, while Popkoff was already serving time, he made a shocking revelation. During further interrogations, he confessed to killing not 78 but 59 additional women, bringing the total number of his known victims to a staggering 81.
2: See, I don't know why, but I keep, I don't know if it's because of his name or what, but I keep thinking of this happening in like earlier times, like the early 1900s. I don't know why I keep visioning that, but this was not that long ago.
1: Well, originally when I researched the case, I was looking for old stories and... Yeah, to me it sounded old-timey, too. You it just kind of like,
2: reminds me of, like, I don't know why, I mean, it's in Russia, but I don't know why I think of, like, Transylvania or, like, you know, the Dracula. Maybe it's because of the title, The Werewolf. <laughs> but I keep thinking it's, like, from, you know, years gone by, but it's not that long the ago.
1: Wee, the we old times. It's, uh, yeah. So this new confession sent shockwaves throughout Russia. Further solidifying, Popkoff's status as one of the most prolific serial killers in the country's history. Popkoff's motives for the murders remained disturbingly consistent. He claimed that he wanted to cleanse his city of what he considered immoral and promiscuous women. This twisted justification only added to the horror of his crimes as he believed he was carrying out a perverted sense of justice.
2: He should have uh, taken care of himself. Should have. But I guess he wasn't a promiscuous woman. He was just a deviant man.
1: Very deviant. As authorities delved deeper into the case, they discovered a pattern in Popkoff's modus operandi. He would often patrol the streets in his car during the late hours looking for potential victims. Many of the women he targeted were sex workers or individuals he deemed vulnerable due to their lifestyle. Popkoff would offer them rides, exploiting their trust in his uniform. Once the victims were in his vehicle, he would drive them to a secluded area where he would carry out a sadistic act. He subjected them to rape, torture, and brutal violence, often bludgeoning them or stabbing them repeatedly until they succumbed to their injuries. In some instances, he engaged in necrophilia with the corpses.
2: Are you freaking kidding me?
1: Nope. Oh this my, guy is
2: He local. is over-the-top insane.
1: And he enjoyed it, too.
2: Necrophilia as well.
1: Yeah. But the sh- these
2: women were just trying to make a living.
1: Yeah. They just wanted to make a buck. The sheer magnitude of Popkoff's crimes and the brutality of which he carried them out shocked the nation and sent shockwaves throughout the international community. His case highlighted the failures in the Russian justice system and raised questions about how police officers could go undetected for so long. In 2018, Popkov was put on trial once again, this time facing charges for the additional murders he had confessed to. He was found guilty and sentenced to a second life sentence solidifying his place behind bars for the rest of his life the chilling legacy of mikhail popkov continues to haunt russia his actions revealed the vulnerability and marginalized groups the importance of improved police scrutiny need for a justice system capable of preventing and swiftly capturing serial killers. The story of Mikhail Popkov serves as a grim reminder of the depths of human depravity and the ongoing fight against such heinous crimes. Mikhail Popkov had a family consisting of his wife Elena Popkova and their daughter Katrina Popkova. Elena was a nurse and the couple had been married for several years before Popkov's crimes came to light. During the time Popkoff was active as a serial killer, his family remained unaware of his true nature. They believed him to be a loving husband and father, unaware of the horrifying double life he led. Popkoff's position as a police officer added an additional layer of deception, as it helped him maintain a facade of respectability and authority. When Popkoff was finally arrested in 2012 and his crimes were exposed, His family was devastated. The revelation that their husband and father were responsible for such unspeakable acts of violence and murder shattered their lives. Elena Popkova filed for a divorce shortly after the arrest, severing ties with a man she had once trusted.
2: Thank God.
1: Thank God. Get away from that, freaky diggy.
2: Yeah, I just Googled. I was curious on what this guy looked like.
1: Oh, Google them. I mean, there might be some updates because at the end of the story, there's some news that I'm going to tell you that could potentially shock you. Oh, no. Yeah. And whether or not this came to life, I don't know because I haven't researched the story since I read it, which was...
2: When you wrote it, yeah, yeah. a few months ago. And he reminds me of what somebody would cast... For like a rough Russian mafia type. Mm. I mean, he looks like that character that they would well, cast.
1: I know you're not a gamer. I am not. But Grand Theft Auto 4. Google that. Okay. And look at the main character of that game. Theft Auto 4. And you will see a very distinct.
2: Oh, just like a little bit younger version of him.
1: Yeah, I mean. I guess, oh. I guess it's depending on what picture you see. Right. Of Mikhail Popka. But yeah, they could be twins. And he's Russian. Um, he's a Russian gangster.
2: <laughs> so Wow. That is a. Yeah. Oh, there's like a, one of him in the. Oh my gosh. The sec- it, is, it is him. <laughs>
1: it kind of looks like him, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. The second that I did the story and I looked at his picture, I was like, holy shit, he's in GTA 4. <laughs> I love that game. <laughs> you were playing
2: Mikhail Pop
1: Cuff. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to
2: distract you.
1: <laughs> the impact on Katrina, their daughter, was also significant. They had come to terms with the fact that their father, whom they have known as a loving and caring parent, was a serial killer. The public scrutiny and stigma associated with her father's crimes undoubtedly had a profound impact on her life. After Popkoff's conviction and imprisonment, his family distanced themselves from him and sought to rebuild their lives away from the shadows of his crimes. However, the effects of having a serial killer as a husband and father are undoubtedly long-lasting, leaving a permanent scar on their lives. It is important to note that while the family members of criminals often face immense difficulties and scrutiny, they are not responsible for the actions of their relatives. No,
2: they are not. No.
1: They are victims themselves. Having their lives upended by the shocking revelations and the actions of someone that they loved and trusted.
2: And they're lucky to be alive themselves. They
1: are. Though he didn't ever show any signs with his family, but so that's a good thing.
2: Right. But a lot of times these people that do stuff like that end up becoming like f- uh, family annihilators. and yeah.
1: So now I'm going to kind of do a couple of a couple sections on a few of the survivors okay. that there were, which actually led to
2: his capture. Partly
1: led to his capture. Uh, one of the two survivors of Mikhail Popkov, Zvetlana Mishievich, which was 17 years old and a virgin when she was attacked while returning home from a friend's house in her home city of Angskar. On a very cold night, frozen from head to toe, Svetlana was approached while walking home by a police officer. He rolled down the window and asked if she needed a ride, thinking to herself, it was a police officer, so of course she accepted the ride. Right. Only being blocks away from home, soon the police officer was passing by her house, and she asked him, where are we going? The next thing she recalls was him repeatedly banging her head against a tree, It seemed to go on for an eternity. He removed her clothes and left her totally naked, she said, adding that she wept during the assault. I was shaking. He wanted to rape me. He was mute. He didn't respond to anything. He said nothing.
2: That makes it almost even more horrifying.
1: Very creepy. That Lana recalled, I crawled out from under him and ran to his car. I was hoping to find the keys there but failed. He caught me and I tripped down some steps. She was wounded and found by some passerbyers, but they refused to help her. What? Yeah, they just left her. Then she saw Popkoff's car approaching her through the bushes by the side of the main road. He attacked her again and left her for
2: dead. This poor baby, literally 17 years old, was just trying to get home. She took on this ride from somebody who was supposed to be her protector... Yeah. Then she gets away and then he captures her again. Oh my god. <laughs>
1: well, that's what makes it so ominous, you know, because it's it's a police officer. Right. You know, who wouldn't jump in that car? Right. You know. Yeah, scary. The next I knew, I woke up in a morgue, she said. I felt so cold. I woke up, I sat down and spotted a label on the toe of a corpse next to me. I whispered, "Oh mother," and felt faint again. I woke up in a hospital later.
2: She woke up in the morgue?
1: Yeah. So they must have thought she was dead, (sighs) took her to the morgue, and then woke up, fainted, and then they actually took her to the hospital.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) For one, don't they check for a pulse or what? Or maybe the cold made it so Uh, faint. uh,
2: Right, that it was so low or so, Yeah. yeah. Oh, my, that holy shit <laughs> yeah
1: i think that would be the worst than the attack waking up in a freaking morgue
2: oh with a toe
1: tag on your toe
2: my god it did, like, i
1: didn't say she had a toe well, tag. well the person next to yes. her did that's enough <laughs>
2: i mean she must not have been in one of the characteristic like pull out no
1: i'm assuming that
2: she was on the table yeah, they
1: probably just brought her in right put her on the table and
2: Holy shit! <laughs> so
1: yeah, I'm assuming if she would have been in a box, she definitely would have been done. Because that don't they do that after like an autopsy and stuff? So? Well,
2: I think they'll put them in there before as well, but oh, they'll just to keep them keep them in the contained and in the cold environment or whatever. I suppose it all depends on how many bodies they have at the time. Yeah, I've never been in a morgue myself. I was very I either, fortunate. I don't want to. <laughs> no, oh, I was very fortunate being in the IT field. A lot of times. The morgue would be near where the servers and stuff were because of the cold conditions, but we did not have a morgue in the hospital I worked in. Thank God.
1: (laughs) So deeply traumatized, she could not tell doctors her name or age. She was listed as being 25. His attack aged me by seven years, she said. Half her hair was torn out during the violent assault. And she was paralyzed down one side of her body. What? I think it was temporary
2: p- right, paralysis. But, but half of her hair ripped out too? Oh my God, he was yeah, brutal. He
1: was brutal.
2: Well, he banged her head on a tree for how long too?
1: Yeah, I, I thought I, I remember something about her hair turning gray, but maybe uh, maybe that's the next victim. When she was discharged a few months later, a few months. Months? Wow after being rescued by her mother her hair had turned gray okay Okay. there's the gray yeah that's what i thought my brain was damaged said Vetlana, now 37 who says she had never gotten over the brutal attack i was frostbitten i was forced to take medication for syphilis he said nothing to me when he saw me in court did not ask to forgive him nothing I was shocked to know the number of victims. He had ruined her life, she said. He does not deserve to live. If not for him, I would have had a normal life, had a family, and given birth to great kids. But for me, I live my life only with medications. He doesn't repent. He is a monster. Other known survivor of Ajia Protasova 36 has managed to cling on to a semblance of normalty despite her trauma. In common with the other attacks, when Popkov attacked Avigya, he struck her over the head, stripping her naked and raped her. In a statement read through a lawyer. Evagia said, it happened in July of 1999 when I was 18. My boyfriend had invited me to a restaurant and we left it at about midnight. He wanted me to go to his place, but I strongly refused and asked him to take me home. Then he got angry and shouted that I could go home on my own. Like Svetlana, a police officer offered her a lift. He was plain clothed but showed her his officer's ID. Popkoff used the tactic repeatedly, sometimes wearing his uniform to lure in as victims, often as they walked along the pavement, slightly tipsy after a drink. He used his crimes to his advantage, telling the women they should get a lift from a police officer because there was a rapist and serial killer at large. Yeah, that's you, Jackass. Yeah. My place was very close, some three minutes drive away and we were quickly there, said Evagia. Instead of stopping, he accelerated the car and drove away. I began to scream. I was so lost. I did not know what to do. I could not stop screaming, and he hit me on the head, and I lost consciousness. All the rest I remember in bits and pieces, but I can recall that he drove me to the forest. He got out of the car and tried to drag me out too, having hit me strongly on the head one more time. I vividly remember his face, looking like a beast, and I got completely scared. Somehow it helped me to keep going. I clearly understood he was going to kill me. So I gathered all my strength, quickly jumped out of my high-heeled shoes, and ran away. Good for her. Yeah, she should have stabbed him with those damn shoes. Yes. But I was not strong enough to escape him, and my head was already injured. She said, of course, he caught me quickly and hit me on the head again. This terrible fear of imminent death was my last memory. The next time I regained consciousness, I was in a hospital in Irkutsk. Popkov was said to, by state investigators to have shocked and dismayed that any of his victims whom he attacked with axes, hammers, knives, screwdrivers, and spades Jesus had survived. Christ. Cocky little bastard. Wow. As a prosecutor said after his life sentence yesterday in her he clearly loved killing. Some victims had 145 or even 170 knife wounds.
2: That's like a rage killing.
1: Yeah. He said that he felt satisfied when he felt their pain as they were stabbed. Evagia said that, What happened was that people picking mushrooms found me in the forest the next day. This is what my mother told me. My mother explained that I was naked. This bastard undressed me and raped me and then thought he had strangled me to death. I have no idea how I got back to life. There is still a scar on my neck after the strangling, but thank God it is almost invisible to other people. She tried her best to forget this horrific ordeal and gradually rebuilt her life. But 13 years later, he was finally arrested and his picture was shown in the media, including online news websites. When I saw Pop photograph online in 2012, I instantly recognized him. Even though the first image I saw had blurred eyes, she said. But I decided not to go to the police. I thought it was so long ago, and nobody would listen to me. And how could I prove it was him? But the investigators found me because of my attack, and and invited me for a chat. Oh, so they went to her. Yeah, they found her. I'm I'm assuming the comparison, right? The way, right? Uh, bravely, she agreed to the trauma of seeing her killer face to face as investigators sought crucial evidence that he was the werewolf. There was also a confrontation with him, and I confirmed to the police he was the maniac who attacked me, raped me, and tried to kill me, she said. Why did I keep silence for so many years? I have a good family now. I am married with two children. I have a son and a daughter. I had never told my husband what I had gone through. But I must say, I had been living under a huge pressure and said...
2: I was going to say, she never healed from it then. No,
1: never got to resolve the issue. This story did not go away. I felt great relief when I told my story, first to the police and then to my husband. And now I feel better each time I tell my story. I went to court because it helped me to get rid of my ordeal. I had lived with it for so many years, and now I felt so much better. Still, I have to say that there is such a huge pain in my heart. I can't imagine I will be completely cured of it one day. Speaking about the moment she came face-to-face with Popkoff in a court, she added, I felt disgusted when he looked at me, sitting there behind bars, so small and skinny, and with me, he was strong and healthy. I don't want to know that this beast will live, he said. He should be executed, shot dead. So now I have some updated information that I updated a few months ago. Oh. And this is where uh, a few interesting facts come out. The story centers around Popcow's alarming pursuit to become part of A prison recruitment scheme linked to Putin's illegal war. This initiative involves sending criminals to fight alongside pro-Russian forces, offering them a chance at a pardon if they manage to survive and continue fighting for six months.
2: Hell fucking no.
1: Yeah, so a pardon after six months.
2: Of fighting the war. Yeah. And what's to stop them from going AWOL?
1: Nothing. That is
2: insanity.
1: So in a surprising turn, Russian authorities grant permission from state TV to interview Popkov, who passionately expressed his desire to join Putin's fighters. He claims to possess valuable radio-electronic experience from his time as a Red Army conscript, hoping that this will secure his place in the scheme which has already released thousands of convicts. As Popkov's vise for a position in the Wagner private army led by Putin, Associate Vig- Vigia, I don't even know how to pronounce that one. <laughs> Not even going to try.
2: You're giving it a good A for Hufford.
1: Yeah, that's beyond my knowledge here. So, which supports the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine? He even confesses to additional murders. When asked about his dreams, he chillingly responds to join the army during the interview conducted by Russian state TV. Popkov's case serves as a chilling reminder of the atrocities that can be perpetrated by an individual, despite being diagnosed with homicidal mania and psychiatric evaluation deemed him mentally competent to serve. <laughs> Uh, raising concerns about the criteria for assessing his fitness for combat. His aspiration to join Putin's fighters in Ukraine sparks a profound moral and ethical question surrounding the utilization of convicted criminals as soldiers and its potential impact on already dire human rights situations in the region. Here's some uh, interesting facts about the city that he lives in or lived in, Angarsk population. So in 1989, the census report shows that the population was 265,835 people. And in 2002, the census shows 247,118 people. And it seems as though Every four years, they're losing about uh, 20,000 people uh, per census report.
2: Are they moving because of what's going I, on I, there, I'm or not is sure he? That... Was this during his uh, no, this
1: was after his convictions? So, oh, I mean, it started right before he got uh, convicted, caught. okay, but it still goes on, so each year. Or each census report, they're losing about 20,000 people for some reason.
2: Wow, what's going on? Blink twice if you're okay.
1: Yeah, maybe it's a pretty rough area. What is it, Ansgar, you said? Yeah, Ansgar, Russia. It's just kind of weird. I, I looked at the census report thinking, what the hell? Yeah, because from 89 to 2002 census report, that was 18,000 people. And then uh, from 2002 to 2004 of 13,000 people and it just keeps going all the way to 2010.
2: That is really weird. I was just looking to see if there was any uh
1: Yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything on the reasoning behind it. It's probably a place that you don't want to live if no. you see something like that cuz usually the population will rise, not
2: fall. Right. And so. I did when i googled his name the last update in the news that i saw was from january so i doesn't it does oh, not look okay. like he was so, released at all for the
1: seems like there would be a lot of uh, public outrage i mean i know that they've done it with other prisoners but You know, what were their circumstances? You know, were they lifers? You know, were they murderers? Right. I mean, this guy is just pure evil. And the total number that I have in here, I don't think I actually listed it, but I think it was like 134 confirmed victims.
2: Holy
1: shit. I think I forgot to add that to the end of my story. I kind of hint at it, but yeah, he's got 134 confirmed
2: This man just can never, never be released. No. I mean, you know he's going to do it again.
1: Oh, yeah. And I'm sure he'll spend his time in that war because he gets to do what he wants to do. Killing. Right. And then... He'll, He'll go AWOL. He would get his pardon. I don't think he would go AWOL because he, he wants get that pardon. It his...
2: would be insane to pardon him.
1: Yeah. They will probably try to eliminate him by putting him on the front line. And I would
2: hope they would never give him a passport or anything because I don't want him anywhere near the US. <laughs> that man is a it's he's a living nightmare.
1: He is. That's why they call him the werewolf. Ay. The werewolf of Russia.
2: Yay. <laughs> well, folks.
1: That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
2: That was insane. I am not going to go to sleep now. I'm going to have nightmares from that. Yeah, me too.
1: So do we have any uh, information that we need to... Leave our, our
2: just the norm that remember that stitcher is,
1: is going away going
2: away so
1: August 29th yeah it's dwindling down so find your alternative listening devices
2: and we have like I said we've got a couple fun adventures planned that are coming up in the near future but other than that I don't think unless you can think of anything I, I think, think our, that's it our uh, news and information is pretty light today.
1: All right, kiddos. I think that's a wrap.
2: Well, goodbye. We love you. Goodbye. Love you.
1: Thanks for hanging out with us here at Total Conundrum. Please make sure to check out our website and blog at TotalConundrum.com for news, upcoming events, merch, bloopers, and additional hysteria. You never know what will pop up, so be sure to follow along. If you want to show your support for Total Conundrum and gain access to all of our bonus content, please visit our Patreon page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links are available in our show notes. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, or stories to share, please email us at at totalconundrum.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts if you like the show please rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts we appreciate the love keep on creeping on mother cluckers